If you would, let's turn to Philippians chapter 2, verses 25 through 30 for the passage that we will look at in the sermon. Philippians 2, 25. The Apostle Paul writes, But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, and fellow worker and fellow soldier who is also your messenger and minister to my need. Because he was longing for you, longing for you all, and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him. And not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow." Therefore I have sent him all sent him all the more eagerly so that when you see him again you may rejoice and I may be less concerned about you receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me the word of the Lord you know, we look, uh, I'm going to I'm give you a little preface here. This is an unusual sermon. Um, I'm going to give you three points, and then I'm going to give you a caveat that's probably going to be most of the sermon, <laughs> but uh, so be it. But you'll see the outline, and you'll find what I'm going to do, and I'll try to explain along the way. But as we look at this letter, you know, we've been talking about the fact that he is in prison, but if you read the letter, it's a fairly joyful letter. In fact, that's one of the big themes if you ever go start studying uh, Philippians. One of the first things they'll point out is this is a joyful letter. And they'll point out all the places where joy is in the letter. He's exhorting us. He is exhorting them to be one. He's exhorting us to be united and harmonious. Um, and for the most part, though, the problem is not just with somebody like the Yodia and Sintiki problem in chapter 4. For the most part, it's upbeat. He's in prison. He's awaiting the verdict of the emperor. He could die, but more than likely he thinks he's going to live. What will happen, we don't know. He doesn't know. It looks like maybe he could be forgotten for a while. Maybe he's on the back burner. Maybe he's out of sight, out of mind, and uh, Nero's not really thinking too much about him. So for right now, though, he is hoping to get back to Philippi. He's hoping to see them. He loves him. them. They love him. He's the one who brought the church into existence, and there's a lot of love going on between them. He hopes to, he has in the past sent Timothy to minister to them, and they have in the past returned the love by sending money to them several times. Of late, they sent Epaphroditus. Again, remember, try to say that three times really fast, see how it works for you. Try to say that, and, and, and Epaphroditus has been sent by them from Philippi, 800 miles all the way to Rome with a gift of money. Now, they gave him a gift of money, but they also sent him as their gift to him to be their arms and to be their legs and to be their voice and to be their encouragement to them. They can't be there, but they can send their man. And the Apostle Paul is greatly cheered up by all of this. And so as he waits to be released in verse 19, he says, But I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you shortly. And then he commends Timothy in verses 19 through 24. He hopes to, to send Timothy shortly. But Timothy's not the one that delivers the letter. Epaphroditus is the one who delivers the letter. 
He says there in verse 25, But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus before I send Timothy. Now, let me give you the three points we'll try to move through this morning. Number one, the description of Epaphroditus. Number two, the reasons for his return, Epaphroditus' return from Rome to Philippi. And then third, the manner in which Epaphroditus should be received. So let's think about the description of Epaphroditus. Now, last week we preached one sermon over, the, over verse 25. And what a verse it is. It's sort of one of those ta-da verses. It's sort of a, a crescendo, if you will. Ben knows better about crescendos than I do. But uh, I, I think I tried to explain it like this. We had a man in California who was an auctioneer. And this auctioneer, he came over to the house one day. We had a whole bunch of kids come over to the house. And um, as, as he came over to the house, we had him explain what auctioneering was like. And so he got in front of the kids and he says, you know, what the auctioneer tries to do, I'm getting cold, I'm a little bit, bit too wet. Um, what the auctioneer tries to do is he builds tension. I don't know if you've ever been around these guys, but when they talk, they, they got a way of talking. And he sat there and he told the kids, you know, when we start off, we start off and we're going to talk about a, a vacation for two. It's a very expensive vacation for two in some great place like Lake Tahoe or something. Or it's some hunt, elk hunt, deer hunt. And we're going to get this up here in front of the people. And he says, every time we've been trained, we've been trained to start out really low. We've been trained to start out really slow. And so we talk about what it is and we explain what it is and we start out slow and low and our voice is sort of like this but as time goes by we begin to talk faster and we begin to build tension and they have this fast cadence and there's this staccato about it all and they move faster and faster and there's that hand and this hand and that hand and this hand and then it's sold to the man in the yellow baseball cap and then it's over and that's sort of what's going on in this verse here ta-da look at this guy this guy is a brother. This guy is a worker, a fellow worker, a fellow soldier. He's a minister. He's a messenger. What a definition of a Christian. Here's the definition of what a Christian is. Are you a brother? This man's a brother. What's a brother? A brother is somebody who's been united to Jesus Christ by faith in Jesus Christ, and he does the will of God. Remember what we said, Mark Chapter 3, verses 20 through 35, if you're part of the family of God, Jesus said, how do you know you're a brother or a sister or a mother? You do the will of God. Here is a brother. Am I a brother? Am I a worker? <laughs> Remember what we said last week? Not just a worker, but a what? A fellow worker? These workers don't just work by themselves. They work together. They get together. They, they work together. They get shoulder to shoulder. They get face to face. They're not just soldiers. They're fellow soldiers. They don't just go against the world by themselves. Here I am against the world by myself. No, I'm going to go against the world, the flesh, and the devil with other Christians. So we're brothers. We're, uh, we're brothers and we're sisters. We're workers who work with others. We're soldiers who fellow soldiers. And we are men who are messengers. Remember we said the word messenger is apostle small a. Somebody under authority. This messenger is somebody under authority. Under the authority, uh, Epaphroditus comes under the authority of the Philippian church to do what they say. He's not supposed to go out and use their money for his own whims. And you and I were under God's authority. 
brothers under authority, workers, fellow workers, fellow soldiers under the authority of God's word. That's a Christian. And finally, minister. He's a minister. That's religious service. We give ourselves up. I love what it says in Romans chapter 6. Those who are in Christ Jesus, what do they do? They yield their members. They yield their hands. They yield their feet. They yield their minds. They yield their ears. Their listening ears. Have you ever sat around and listened to somebody? That's being a minister. This is a Christian. The apostle describes Epaphroditus in these terms. Do these terms describe me? Well, second, second, here's the second point. The reasons for his return, Epaphroditus' return. Now, he becomes sick. You notice that he became sick. And we don't know the exact reasons or, or, or the circumstances. We might think that he became sick while he was on his 800-mile journey from Philippi all the way to Rome. Did he become sick while he was on that 42-day journey? That's 42 days of journey. That's not one, you know, like I told you last week, I, can get to, I could get from... Uh, San Francisco airport to Tyler in so many hours in one day. This is 42 days. (laughs) There's a lot of stuff to go through. Did he get sick while he was on the way? Or did he get sick after he got to see the Apostle Paul, delivered the money, started working while he was there? Probably not great conditions in that dank prison. And so when, when did he get sick? We don't know. But there's one thing we do know, and that is this. The news of his sickness went all the way to Philippi, and then that news came back all the way to him and Paul, and now he is distressed over their distress for him. He does, we do know that. We don't know how he got sick. We know he almost died. And so here's the first reason for Paul sending Epaphroditus back home, so that the love and the distress of Epaphroditus could be alleviated or satisfied. He reacted, verse 26, because he was longing for you, Paul says to, to the Philippians, for he's longing for you all, and he was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. He was distressed, and he was longing for them. This is not normal distress. This word distress here, his distress for them, is a word that's the strongest word in the New Testament for depression. <laughs> this man is depressed. Depressed over not being with them to be able to alleviate his own stress and their stress over him being sick. We have words in commentaries sound like this. Overwhelmed in his heart. Over anxious. Filled with profound agony. I can only think about Exodus, I mean, uh, Genesis 32 where Jacob is getting ready to be met by his brother Esau. And it says that he was distressed to the maximum. Worried, worried about meeting his brother whom he had swindled. Habakkuk 3.16 tells us that Habakkuk is contemplating Nebuchadnezzar's invasion of Judah. And his knees are knocking together. His mouth is quivering as he thinks about Nebuchadnezzar invading his homeland. And the same word is used in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus was sweating great drops of blood, he's distressed. He's not just a little distressed here. Epaphroditus is distressed for this congregation over their distress. He's restless over their restlessness. He's distracted over their distractedness over him. So he needs to go and Paul sends him for these reasons. Number two, he's longing for them. 
And the word longing there, you know, there's, there's words that can be used negatively. This can be something longing for something negative, sinful, and longing for something that is good. And he longs to show up and give them evidence that he is okay. He wants to eliminate all that anxiety. Now, you know, before I go on, let me just say this. Wow, what a guy. <laughs> Am I, do I love the body of Jesus Christ like that. I mean, if I don't show up, if I'm providentially hindered, that's one thing. But if I don't show up for worship, is there something I'm not going to get to do? Is there some love of mine that I'm not going to get to pour out? There's, some, there's something in me. I've got to pour this stuff out on somebody. These are the persons God wants me to pour out on right now. If I don't show up, I don't get to be alleviated of this pressure. This is what this guy's feeling. And I am convicted. Do I really love this body that much? i got to come. i got to get this stuff out. I've got love that needs to be poured out on the people of God. Do I love the body of Christ to that degree? that I have to get my love out. Well, here's where we're going to take a little deviation. I want you to notice verse 27. This just really sort of blows the sermon to bits for a second, but I think it's worth it. There's four questions I want to answer here over this particular these particular words in verse 27. Notice what it says, Therefore, indeed, he was sick to the point of death. And I think this gives us a glimpse into the Apostle Paul's heart. I had to make a decision. Do I preach two sermons or do I preach one? And you're going to get it all in one. And I hope we can just put it back together. But stick with me. For indeed, he says, he was sick to the point of death. And verse 26 says he was sick. Verse 27 says he's sick to the point of death. Verse 30 says he came close to death for the work of Christ. Add it all up. 800 mile journey. Added up, delivering the gift, staying and taking care of this man in this prison. All the great difficulties and all the stress wore him out to the point of death. So here's four questions to ask. Why didn't the Apostle Paul heal or prevent Epaphroditus' sickness? Why not? He's healed others before. Why didn't he heal him this time? Here's the answer. Because even though he was an apostle who at times did perform miracles and who found while he was preaching there was power there to do different miracles, his, he didn't do miracles at his own whim. His will was subject to the will of God. When there was power there to do a miracle, he would do it. But he couldn't just do it when he wanted to. He told Timothy, in one time to take a little wine for his stomach. And at another time he told Trophimus he left him sick in Miletus. Even Jesus in Mark chapter 1, after he's been healing all these people in Mark chapter 1, everything that moves was coming to him. He was so exhausted, he goes out in the middle in the morning, he prays all until maybe daylight, and the apostles find him, or disciples they find him, and they say, Lord, everybody's all of them are waiting in line back at the house. Come and heal them all. Jesus says, no, i got to go somewhere else because I'm here not to do that. I'm here to preach the word. Why does he need to preach the word? Well, his first priority is to preach to save men and women from the soul-damning disease of sin. 
not just to give eyes back to blind people. Second question, why didn't the Apostle Paul heal or prevent this sickness by means of prayer? So that these two men could get right back to being fellow workers and fellow soldiers. Why didn't he heal him with prayer? God does use prayers in keeping and healing people. And God does use prayers to prevent sickness. But again, prayer is not a guarantee against illness and disease. Prayer is not using God like a genie in the bottle. And it's not pressing a button. Our prayer also is subject to the sovereign will of God. And in the sovereign will of God, he has determined that believers and unbelievers get sick, sometimes very sick, and they die. 2 Kings 13, 14, we're told that Elisha the prophet became sick and he was told to get ready, prepare to die. And he did. We also see in 2 Kings chapter 20, Hezekiah became mortally ill. The prophet came to him, said, set your house in order. It's your time to die. And he bent down on his knees and prayed to God. And God said, I'll give you 15 more years. So there's one man died, one man prayed, and he didn't die for 15 years. In John chapter 11, Jesus' friend, Lazarus, died. Jesus raised him from the dead. And he's walking around and they have a party the next day. But he died again. If he didn't die again, we would be discussing him right now. (laughs) But he did die again. And the fact is, is that Christians do get sick like Epaphroditus and die. It's not God's will for us to live forever on the earth. But now here's a nugget that I think this is worth listening to. He says in verse 27, but God had mercy on him. Now, this is where Calvin asked a question. This is Calvin's question. This is not mine. But when I started coming up with questions, I threw his in the, in the batch. Why, he asked, does the Apostle Paul ascribe, to, ascribe this um, raising up to the mercy of God that his life is prolonged? Why does he ascribe it to the mercy of God? And he argues like this. Hasn't the Apostle recently mentioned that for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Wouldn't it be better? If Epaphroditus had died, it would have been gain. In another place, he says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Wouldn't that be better? Wouldn't it be better no longer struggling against all the miseries, no longer struggling against all the trials, no longer struggling against all these sicknesses and all the things we have to deal with, and you can name all the hundreds of them that we can name at work or wherever we are. Right? Listen to this answer. Here's the answer. I answer, Calvin says, that all these things do not prevent this life from being, nevertheless, considered in itself an excellent gift from God. Do I need to read that again? Nevertheless, all the stuff we go through Why do we want to live? And he says, this is an excellent, life is an excellent gift from God. I love that. Don't you? Why do people want to keep living? Because that's true. Life is an excellent gift from God. And so here we are. Here we are. Every time you are sick, 
Every time you have the flu, every time you are raised up from the sickbed, 21 days, I had COVID for 21 days. When I was raised up, it was a mini salvation. It was a mini mercy from God. God raised me up. And it's a great thing because you know I have something to live for. You and I have something to live for. We're not raised up just to live. We're raised up to live for God. There's something wonderful about this life in the midst of all the trials. In Mark 1, 29 through 31, Peter's mother-in-law is lying sick with, with a fever. They go over. They, they jiggle Jesus on the shoulder. They tell him about it. He raises her up. And immediately, it doesn't take her five days to get well, Rachel. She can get better in five days. She was well immediately. And she immediately does what? Well, I think, what do I do now? Is that what she said? <laughs> what do I do now? No, she just went straight over and started serving these guys. In Mark chapter 5, Jesus tames that, that, that man full of all the legion of demons. What does he do? Jesus says, go home, tell everybody about the great mercy I've had on you. The great mercy of God. The psalmist, over and over, y'all read these psalms. Here's, here's just a little compilation of it. Um, he's, in a, he's in a cave praying. And he's saved. He's sick and he's saved. And he goes through all kinds of grave circumstances and he's saved. And he makes all these vows while he's sick or while he's in a cave. He says, I've got him. I'm going to go tell everybody about you. And then he says this. How can I tell anybody about you if I'm dead? That's a pretty good question. Can't tell anybody about you if I'm, if I'm dead. God had mercy on Epaphroditus, this little mini salvation. Raising him up to send him back to his people to alleviate his own concerns and to alleviate their concerns. Every time God raises us up. Little mini salvations. So that we can get up and serve. So that we can get up and tell people how merciful God is. So that we can pay our vows while we're alive. Okay, so we talked about micro salvation. Has God had mercy on you in a macro sense of the word? I know I'm going to have to explain this. Has God saved you in the, from the big stuff? I mean, look, it's one thing to be raised up from the, from the flu. But have you been saved from your sin? Has God had mercy on you such that even if you're not raised up from the flu and you die, yet shall you live? That's what Jesus says. Has God had mercy on you such that you've been saved from the disease of sin? Soul damning disease of sin. Sin is the problem. Sin is the thing that causes us a problem between our hearts and God. It causes us a, a problem between ourselves and our wives and our friends and all the other people in the world, if you will. Then Jesus, he says to a leper, he heals the leper. And then he raises up a man who can't walk. And he does things like give sight to the blind and hearing back to those who cannot hear. These are many things to show us, many small things to show us this bigger thing that Jesus has come to save us from our sins. And if you and I will say, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. You will hear him say, I am willing. Have you asked him? It's a big thing. These are many things. I love the many ones. I like it. But here's the big one. Have you been saved from your sin by the power of the gospel? Well, back to the text. God had mercy on him and not on him only, Paul says, but also on me. So that I have not, so that I would not have sorrow 
upon sorrow. Now, that's the thing that we need to think about for a second. That I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Now, that's a, this is a window into his soul. He's telling us that in this prison, <laughs> he's not Teflon. He's telling us in this prison, he's not the man of steel. He's telling us in this prison that there is sorrow. If this man had died, there would have been more sorrow. There's sorrow in this prison with, his, with Paul. He is not running around going, nothing touches me. Right? It's not what he's saying. He's not exempt from human feelings. He's not Alexa. Alexa doesn't feel anything. Right? Or whatever the name might be in your house. I mean, there might be another name. Right? These things don't feel anything. This guy has, he feels this. When I, when I was reading in Genesis about Joseph, <laughs> you know, Joseph, man, Joseph, everything's going good in prison, right? You think he wants to be in prison? <laughs> you think Joseph, it's going good. Everything's in his hand. You think he wants to be in prison? That, he, it's, he doesn't want to be in prison. He tells the chief cupbearer, he says, when you go back, tell him I'm in here and I'm in here for the wrong reason. He, wants not, he doesn't want to be in there. There's sorrow. Now, we can say all day long that he's learned to experience joy in the midst of troubles. But he's sorrowing, and he's telling us if this man had died, he would have had a sorrow on top of the sorrow he's already knowing. And it would have been hard to endure. Now, this is Calvin. This is what Calvin says here. What would Paul have done if this man had died? Would he have fallen into the black hole of despair? And he says, I don't think so. He says, I don't think so. He says, I think he would have gathered himself up and he would have brought all his sorrows in line with God's will. That's a great thought. We as Christians are not to fall into the black hole of misery. We're tempted to fall into it. We're tempted to fall into this misery. But Calvin says, if we're Christians, here's what he says. He says this. If you're going to have victory in the Christian life, what are you supposed to do, man? You have to strive. You have to be diligent. You have to resist the world, the flesh, and the devil in everything to have victory, not just in these, these you know, in the home, at home, with my, but with my family, reading the Bible. But I have to have God helping me to resist and strive even when there's sickness and even when there's death. Well, here's the last question. What do we do when a loved one dies? Is there any mercy? Well, I, I'm going to give you an answer, and it's in Matthew 14, 12. And here's the answer. When, some, when a loved one dies, here's the answer. Go tell Jesus everything. In Matthew 14, 12, John the Baptist loses his head, and his disciples come to Jesus, and they told him everything. And Jesus wants to go to a place, to a secluded place, because his heart goes out to them. And so if you lose someone to death, then you go tell Jesus everything. I must tell Jesus all of my trials. I cannot bear these burdens alone. In my distress, he kindly will help me. He ever loves and he ever cares. For his own. That's a hymn. 
If you're going through the valley of the shadow of death, you know, in the Psalm 23, Jesus, Jesus, our good shepherd, he's out there leading us through all these wonderful places. He's in the lead position. But when we start going through difficulties, he moves to what I call the alongside position. And he puts his arm around you and he says, you can tell me anything. He hadn't changed. He's always been the same. He's right here with us. And you can tell him anything. He's going to comfort you. He's going to be with you. He's going to help you to understand there's something worth living for unless it's our time to go. We, we talked about the other day, and I don't think Betty Jean will mind, but obviously God's got something for Betty Jean to do because she's still here. And she had a car rub up against her. She had to go wash her clothes because the car rubbed up against her. It could have killed her. God's got something for us to do. Not to despair, not to fall into that hole. And Jesus is going to lead us. He's going to show us that surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the way to heaven. Well, that's the detour. Let's go back to the sermon. The reasons for Epaphroditus' return. The first reason is this. So that the love and the distress of Epaphroditus could be satisfied. And second, so that in, in seeing, Paul seeing Epaphroditus the Philippians would rejoice. Listen to verse 28. Therefore, Paul says, I have sent Epaphroditus all the more eagerly so that when you see him again, you may rejoice. Who's thinking about who here? <laughs> I mean, this is fabulous. I'm sending your gift to me. I'm sending the gift to me that you've sent to be hands and feet and love and kindness and helpful to me. I'm sending him back. Kind of like Indian giver? Or, no, I'm, not, I'm, I'm giving him back. I'm not an Indian giver, you know. I mean, he's sending him back. This is his heart. Their joy meant more to him than him having comfort. I was sitting in 2008 at my mom's table preparing a sermon. And every Thursday, she would come home from her church where she would do Bethesda Clinic. She was the person who ran the people through to the doctors. And she comes home, and she came home with two Subway sandwiches, me a cup of, you know, she bought me a coffee and her a drink. And then these tears start falling down of her, out of her eyes, and I'm like going, what's going on? And she said, you know, your dad, he died a year ago. I just sat down with the accountant. And she just told me that your dad saved this much money for me for the rest of my life. And I never knew it. <laughs> you see, that's it. That's why daddy drove those beater trucks all those years. And that's why daddy always went and bought those shoes. And, you know, my dad would referee football games. And instead of buy the black shoes with the black lines on them, he would buy the white ones with the white lines on them. Where, and he would get a pen and he'd paint them black. Because the white lines would cost less than the ones with the black lines. And so he got the lesser valuable shoes and he painted them black. He was always doing stuff. But nobody, he never told me. I'm gonna, when I meet him in heaven, I'm going to say, Dad, why don't you teach me how to save that kind of money? Why was he doing this? My mom's sitting there going, I'm totally fine for the rest of my life. I'll put you first. And this is what Paul's doing. I'm going to put your joy first. I'm sending your gift back to you so that I can see you be happy and I'll do without for a while. 
giving up our Epaphroditus in order to see the joy in the eyes of another member in the church. Well, third, so that, so that uh, in seeing Epaphroditus, I may be less concerned. Just really quickly, the apostle sends Epaphroditus to them so that they will rejoice, and so his burden is lighter. Knowing their distress is removed eliminates his distress. So the apostle sends Epaphroditus back, and it alleviates his distress for them. It alleviates uh, their distress. They rejoice, and he is less concerned. Both the apostle and Epaphroditus were men whom we should emulate. These men demonstrate how to serve. These men demonstrate how to sacrifice for others that others might be in less distress. Well, finally, how do we receive somebody? How should somebody like Epaphroditus be received? And he says in verse 29, Receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in much regard. You know, when we read our Bibles, sometimes we, uh, we read our Bibles, and we were talking about this in the men's group yesterday. We just read it, and all we have is what we read. And so we read this, this and we say, okay, this guy, he brought a gift from Philippi. I mean, yeah, from Philippi all the way to Rome. But, okay, um, until you go look at the map. And when you look at the map and you see that it's 800 miles, whoa. And then when you go and you read a story um, and you understand the difficulties of a 42-day trip and you understand the difficulties and dangers of brigands on the highways and being robbed, you understand all of those things, you add those things into there, and now you have a man who's a fearless person. You have an Epaphroditus who is uh, a risk-taker, Somebody who's willing to put his personal comfort to the side so that Jesus Christ might be served. He got sick and almost died. And with all that had happened, the apostle tells him that this man never grumbled, never complained. He became a man afflicted for you. (laughs) He was not done when he brought the gift he was not done when he did some service to me. He wants to come back. How do you treat a guy like this? How do you receive a guy like this? Well, with joy. Folks, listen. Epaphroditus stands as a monument in front of us of what we should be like. Loving and serving and sacrificing. Epaphroditus is a monument of sacrifice and being spent for others and being spent for Christ. He knocks in the head every Christian who thinks all you need to do is be on the roll. He knocks in the head the idea that every now and then we tip God in the offering plate. He knocks in the head anything that just thinks I can obey God when I want to. (laughs) This guy, he's giving it all for him. He rebukes all Christianity that limits sacrifice and love to God. There's a sign in the Alps that reads, He died climbing. That's a grave marker in the Alps. And in Epaphroditus, we have a man who almost died climbing as he served and sacrificed for Christ. And if God had not seen fit to raise him up for further sacrifice and service when he went back to the Philippi, even if he had died, he would experience to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He would have experienced the benefits of a life of sacrifice and service, which are literally out of the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this 
word. Thank you for your truth. And Father, we pray that we might be those who live according to it. Help us to be uh, this crescendo. Help us to be brothers, fellow workers, fellow soldiers, ministers and messengers. Lord, help us to be those who love Jesus Christ and be like Epaphroditus. Follow his example of sacrifice and service, caring for those uh, in his congregation. Help us to care for each other. Help us to be known as a, a fellowship that loves the brothers. We'll praise you for it. Help us now to, as we conclude our service with singing and the benediction and help us enjoy fellowship together. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.